there are tons of people, tons of people who went over to Afghanistan with America, fully believing that they were there to do good things in the interest of the Afghan people. Yeah. They were excited about using American influence and power and money to better other people's lives. Yeah. And, and, and Christians have a lot to do with this, right? With trying to take the societies that the Bible would consider to be Babylon and make that Babylon into Zion. If you don't disentangle the two, like you think you can go over there and use the tools of the empire for the good of the kingdom of God. And if you believe God is on your side, not only do we not recognize the naivete, we call it faith. Welcome to Stake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith of the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. My name is Cy Hoekstra here with Jonathan Walton and Susie LaHood. As always, we are going to talk a little bit today uh, about Afghanistan and America's exit from it, our, what we've been doing over the last 20 years there, and um, how the church in particular has uh, uh, affected what's going on there, how we think about what's going on there, and how that kind of reflects um, some things that we may need to correct in our discipleship a little bit. Um, we are going to try very hard to stay in our lane during this conversation. We're not going to pretend to be, uh, you know, experts on war or foreign policy or the logistics of evacuating people from a country or anything like that. We're going to be talking uh, much more about the stuff with which we are familiar and can hopefully have some helpful remarks on, uh, namely our, our theology and how the church interacts with uh, the politics uh, of foreign policy and, and war and colonialism. Uh, before we get started, though, remember, if you like this podcast and you want to support it, the best way is to go to ktfpress.com and to sign up to be uh, either a monthly or annual subscriber. If you want a free month at the beginning of that subscription, you can go to ktfpress.com slash free month. I think you, I, I personally think you should be able to remember that URL. If you want a free month of ktfpress.com, go to ktfpress.com slash free month. Now, that subscription gets you our weekly newsletter on uh, resources to help you in political education and discipleship as you leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God. It gets you writing from the three of us, and it gets you bonus episodes uh, of this podcast. It also helps support uh, the free version of this podcast, future book projects, which we will be able to announce something about fairly soon. Also remember, follow us uh, on social media at KTF Press on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Tell your friends about us, and you can write in with any questions that you have about anything that you hear on this show at shakethedust at ktfpress.com. If you want to be a part of the conversation and maybe get your, your question heard on an uh, episode that we will probably be doing soon because we are just uh, a few episodes away from uh, the end of our first season. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, we will probably be doing uh, a, an episode where we answer some some questions from people, reflect a little bit more like we've done in the past. Okay, so let's get started. So, you know, what, what we're going to talk about is the United States has officially withdrawn the last of its troops from Afghanistan who have been there for 20 years, basically, since not that long after 9-11. There was you know, an extremely chaotic evacuation uh, from Kabul, from the capital city, People go back and forth on whether or not that could have been avoided. Again, we're not going to argue about that because that is not our area of expertise. And then very quickly after the U.S. left, the Taliban uh, retook most of the country and then just in the past few days has has retaken the capital. 
Um, we're recording this, by the way, on Monday, August 23rd. So what I'm what I wanted to bring up, all three of us in turn are going to bring up a point. And we're going to kind of discuss each other's thoughts as we go. What I wanted to bring up was this. There are so many people on both sides of the aisle basically taking uh, the exit of the troops as an opportunity to blame the other side for something or other. Right. So there are there are a lot of Republicans blaming Biden for leaving at this time, blaming blaming Biden and the Democrats for botching the evacuation. There are a lot of Democrats saying this is just the inevitable end of the the forever war on terror that the Republicans started 20 years ago. I don't know. Those are kind of two of the main talking points, but people are going back and forth on all of that. And underlying so much of that commentary is basically an assumption that the United States could have, if we had executed it properly, basically created a peaceful, stable society that operated in the interests of the Afghan people apart from the desires of the Taliban or others. So the assumption there that I want to talk about is that America could have actually invested the enormous sums of money into, you know, not just fighting the Taliban, but actually empowering, like legitimately giving power to the Afghan people such that their interests, not our interests were met, right? Because ultimately, if we go in there only like looking at our own self-interests, then it was basically over the moment the Taliban were, were defeated. We're out of, or at least we're out of power, right? Because that's, that's what we were there for. We were there to fight someone who had attacked us. And beyond that, like as long as Afghanistan isn't bothering us, they are kind of like any other country in the world that doesn't have a stable government or doesn't have enough money or medical care or or political infrastructure or anything else they they are they are not ultimately we're we are not ultimately interested in their well-being right and that mm-hmm. is the logic of of colonialism right like the the logic of colonialism right. is that we are not just like richer people who have more wealth and more ability to be comfortable and less violent but we are actually people who are fundamentally better than they are we are in america's case the best people in the world is our belief about ourselves and that we can go in and by our mere presence and our directing uh, them by their submission to us we can create a stable peaceful society and it doesn't matter whether or not we have used you know violence or selfishness in our pursuit of those goals all of those things are the logic of colonialist europe right like our sort of inheritance our our intellectual inheritance you know i just think that a lot of people in their commentary now are assuming uh that that's not the case right that we haven't carried on in that tradition and that we really were care like capable of creating a society in our own image that would just kind of you know democracy as as the neocons were fond of saying 20 years ago would sort of flower in in the uh in the region as we were welcomed as liberators right that's kind of my main thought what do you guys think i i think your words were too kind um, <laughs> i think uh, do tell the re the reality from from my perspective george bush george george w bush decided that the revenge for the 9-11 attacks was going to be the destruction of a country and a people to get one person so that he could claim a political victory and move forward. And then he created a moral case for invading the country by saying that we were going to liberate girls. And the reality was those girls were being violated and exploited the, on September the 10th, and he did not care about them. Mm-hmm. But on September 12th, all of a sudden, they become this focus 
Mm. Because what Biden said 20 years later is that it's no longer in our national interest. And the reality is that caring for vulnerable and marginalized people is never in the interest of the United States unless it suits the political purposes of the people in power to retain that power or exact revenge, which is exacting revenge was really just for a political gain to keep power and look like there was some sort of cohesive military revengeful response. I don't know if that was coherent at all. No, it was. I would also add, by the way, in addition to not caring about the women and girls in Afghanistan on September 10th, you know, a couple of decades before we were actually arming the Taliban. <laughs> yes, right. absolutely right. To fight the Soviets. Yeah, exactly. That we, yeah. we wanted them to, it was part of our policy of containing uh, communism. I think that white Europeans, by their mere, mere presence, believe that it is God's providence for the people of, and the land that they are there. Mm-hmm. That is in that is innate in a colonialist mindset. And it has not changed. Where the city on the hill was was literally what George W. Bush said. <laughs> exactly. Right. So yeah. he, but the mere presence of an American, we believe, makes the land and the people better. And like that, that is like the fundamental lie that the presence of a white person makes a place more valuable. Mm-hmm. The presence of a white person, the presence of wealth, the presence of power, proximity to proximity to, to to colonial power makes people, makes land, makes resources, makes everything more valuable. And that is a cosmic, sinful, anti-Christian level of hypocrisy. Susie, what are your thoughts? I feel like I just have to say um, I'm I'm struggling to put words to just thoughts and emotions around what's going on in Afghanistan right now, as I know a lot of folks are. And part of that is I just feel like it's a certain kind of privilege that you can go in and mess up a people's society and nation and pull out with the kind of debacle that we've seen and and then be able to just sit around and talk about it like it's dinner conversation. And Mm -hmm. the distance that we have as Americans from the violence that we create in places across the world, just really deeply disturbs me. Um, And I think is something that, as you were saying at the outset of this episode, side needs to be called out, particularly in the church, because as Christians, we we need to be close to the brokenhearted and to the marginalized and to those who are suffering. And we are in this, yeah, colonialist situation where we sit in our comfortable seat of empire and we don't hear the cries of the Afghan people. You know, we're, we're not there right now in the midst of the chaos at the Kabul airport as people are fleeing for their lives. So I think just first of all, um, I know this is an important conversation. It's one I feel uncomfortable even having because of the amount of privilege that comes with even being able to just sit and talk about these things from the safety of our own homes. I appreciate you saying that. Jonathan and I just came in kind of hot because we're mad. And that is a very good reminder, and I appreciate that. Yeah, no, and I don't, I don't say that to to call out you guys specifically. Ne- nevertheless, it applies to probably, definitely me, and probably Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, and because ang- anger is easier than grief. But yeah, go ahead. Right. But even just in general, you know, Sai, you were talking about all the chatter we're hearing right now about Afghanistan, um, and the way it's been made into this partisan yeah. issue. And, and that to me is just the height of that kind of hypocrisy that we then get to weaponize it in our own little, you know, political games that we play. And, and again, it's not affecting our lives. The war is not here. 
Um, I know that there are folks, you know, families of, of troops who were sent overseas, and that's a whole other conversation, but we, it doesn't affect us in the same way. And I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem that we're so distanced from it. Go, going to your point, Sai, which I think is an important one that you initially made about how all of this ties into American imperialism. And this is something you and Jonathan were talking about the other day when we were initially kind of having a conversation about Afghanistan. And, and you both brought up th- this concept of the white man's burden that was so prominent in the, in the heyday of the British Empire. And American exceptionalism is really just the contemporary manifestation of that. This idea, like you were saying, and like Jonathan was saying, that by us going in, we're going to make things better, that recreating people in our own image is going to make them better. It it should be so obvious that it's that same mechanism at work, that same lie, that same deception, that same racist philosophy. And it boggles the mind that so often we don't see that. We still believe in this idea that we are bettering the world by by going out and doing these things. Specifically, when I was thinking about the white man's burden, I was literally thinking of the poem. For those of you who don't know, that was like, for some reason, it was just like Rudyard on repeat Kipling. in my head last week. Yeah, Rudyard Kipling, who was a British imperialist, mm-hmm. he wrote a poem to the United States when we occupied the Philippines, which is something that a lot of mm-hmm. Americans tend to forget about. But uh, after the Spanish War, we took control of the Philippines. We paid Spain for it as part of the treaty when we when we got it and um we -hmm. occupied it for for a couple of decades basically until the the japanese invaded in world war ii and yeah he he wrote this ridiculous poem about the white man's burden and how you you take up this colonialist project for the good of other people and you sacrifice and they are ungrateful and they judge you even though you've done nothing but a, a selfless deed and then he said exactly what I heard in several places uh, on social media and in, in the mainstream media, which is that, you know, the moment that you think that your project, your grand glorious colonialist project is finished, then basically the, the laziness of the heathens that have been subject to you will, will turn all of your efforts to nothing and they will squander it, you know, which is exactly what we've been saying about the Afghan people for the past week or what not. Right. A lot of people have been saying, right. Like they, they didn't fight for their own country. Like how long can we be there and babysit these people while they, while they fail to do what we came there to help them do. And you know, that's, that's the way of thinking. You think of it that way, which is the colonialist way of thinking of it instead of what, what did we do to this region that created the instability, that created the poverty and the famine and the fear and the distrust and the corruption? And like how unrealistic were our goals going into it or how prideful were we? You know, those aren't the questions. You blame the people who have been the victims of us and the Taliban and the Soviets and whoever for mm-hmm. decades and, and uh, blame mm-hmm. the whole situation on them. Um, so yeah, Kipling was in my head last week, which is never pleasant. Susie, you had a point um, about Christian nationalism that you wanted to make. Yeah. So another thing other than these, again, this sort of partisan mudslinging that we've seen over Afghanistan, some of that kind of chatter that I've seen is Christians, you know, expressing concern. And a lot of times it is actually the conservative sort of far-right Christians over the persecution of the the underground church in Afghanistan. 
and certainly we need to be standing with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now. We need to be praying. But what's disturbing to me is that I find that oftentimes it's the folks who are most vocal about the persecution of the Christian church that are most prone to espouse the kinds of Christian nationalist rhetoric and ideas that you know we saw on January 6th. I want to make that connection because I don't think that folks who are in the Christian nationalist camp who fall within that camp realize that when we consciously tie together religion and empire in that way, when we're expressing these ideas that America is a Christian nation and wrapping that up in this shroud of patriotism and militarism and you know these ideas about the American way of life and when we do that, we're actually contributing to the persecution of the church overseas, specifically churches like the one in Afghanistan. When you go into a place like Afghanistan and you say that you're bringing Christ, particularly as an American missionary, what folks see is that you're bringing, and I'm going to use the phrase again that was so prominent within the British Empire, this idea of, of a civilizing mission this idea that you're going to recreate people in your own image to make them more like you, to make them better citizens of your foreign empire as an occupying force. And so then you get entangled with, with this idea of, of conquering an empire. And, and rather than trying to disentangle the message of Christ from that, you're actually reinforcing that. And so, you know, we see this in, in really clear cultural ways with American Christians that go over and we go and we bring our, our Super Bowl parties and our, and our white picket fences and, again, our undying support of the U.S. military. And what do folks see when they see that? Do they really see Christ in us? Do they really see Jesus of Nazareth? Or do they see our Americanness? What do they understand about heaven? Do they understand heaven to be eternity with God in his presence, worshiping him forever? Do they understand heaven to be America? Something that happens a lot of times in contexts like Afghanistan and other places is you have folks who who join the church, you know, profess faith in Christ, and then they really, really want to get to the United States. And, and American Christian missionaries are like, well, I mean, that's not our job. That's not, you know, why we're here. And I think will judge their faith accordingly, that they're not serious enough about their faith, that they're not willing to stay and be persecuted for it. But really, I think we we create that. So you started by saying that that was tied, that that kind of Christian nationalism, that kind of missionary work is tied to the persecution of the church overseas. How does that work? People, people in Afghanistan also have access a, a lot of times to television, satellite TV. And they see these images that are coming. Again, I'll go back to January 6th. They saw those same banners waving in the name of Christ at the time of the insurrection. They saw that violence being played out in the name of Christ. And and the Afghan people certainly have been victims of the kind of violence that comes out of the United States in the name of God and country. And so that endangers the church because then anyone, and this is actively what the Taliban are saying, folks who then choose to follow Christ are seen as traitors, are seen as being complicit in the American occupation, 
are seen as being complicit in America's imperial project in Afghanistan. And are seen as potentially violent. Um, I don't know that I would actually make that connection explicitly. I don't think it's that they're seen as violent, but they are seen as being proximate to the violence, if that makes sense. They're seen as being enablers because Mm. rather than resisting it, they're sort of welcoming it and becoming a part of it. Yeah. So I don't think it's that they're seen as being explicitly violent in the sense that they're afraid that they're going to pick up guns and form Christian Afghan militias. So Susie, to ask a clarifying question, it sounds like what you're saying is that if someone from Afghanistan decided to follow the brown man from Palestine, or what is now Palestine, mm-hmm. that would be a very different threat and conversation among people from there than a person deciding to follow the Jesus of America. Yeah. Because the Jesus of America is a threat in a whole different way. Yeah, no, that's a good way of clarifying it. And I think I should also, we always try to keep these conversations as nuanced as possible. And essentially all religious minorities are in danger in Afghanistan right now. And yeah, the Taliban have been going after and will continue to go after anyone who falls outside their brand of what they consider to be orthodoxy. Yep. But then also part of the problem we we reinforce through only caring about the Christians who are going to be persecuted. This is something we talked about in our episode with Wissam al-Salibi. Christians in America right now are all up in arms and concerned for the persecution of the Christian church. We're not talking about the Hazara people. We're not talking about the Sikhs and the Hindus in Afghanistan who are also going to be hunted down and killed. And again, that just reinforces this idea that we care about them because they've become one of us. They've become citizens of our empire. And, and again, I know it's complex. Like, you know, you think of folks who have chosen to follow Jesus as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there is a significant bond there. I don't mean to deny that. But as we've spoken about at other times on this podcast, everyone's created in the image of God. And how does it look when we only care for our own for anybody who's like at all still unclear about how this works and you're familiar with, you know, American politics, really just think of how we've treated Muslims in America for the last 20 years. It's the same thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Somebody attacked us. We associated them mm-hmm. with the 1 billion Muslims on planet Earth and decided that they were all kind of the same. And then we started persecuting Muslims in our own country, whether yeah. that was, you know, we Jonathan and I are in New York where the NYPD for years carried out a massive like surveillance campaign on just random innocent Muslims in New York city, surveilling mosques, surveilling religious leaders, homes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the military was arresting and and torturing innocent people around the world who were Muslims, like had nothing right. whatsoever to do with Al Qaeda. Right. We yeah. had people in America who were, who were attacked, who were killed. Right. And some of the, uh, in New York city to, yeah. to bring in New York city and to bring in, the other people that Susie was just talking about in Afghanistan, some of them were not Muslims, right? right? Some of them were just people that we perceive as Muslims, like Sikhs or Hindus or whoever. You know, before we go thinking that this is like a foreign concept, it, it is very easy to associate people who you consider others with something bad that some very tiny fraction of that group has done and then harm those people as a result. Even though before you said this, Susie, about connecting Christian nationalism in this, I never... I don't think I ever had that thought. It's something that I then realized pretty quickly was like, should have been something that we expect. We've done this. Why wouldn't they? 
what what I was stuck on as as Susie was talking was the where I am sitting in this dialogue. And the reality is I'm sitting in New York City in a house, climate controlled, under the threat of no violence or persecution, at least at this moment. And um, just the reality that guilt, shame, fear, obligation, anger, and wanting praise for ourselves are no reasons that are enduring to seek justice. So if, if I want to get rid of my guilt, eventually seeking justice is going to stop. Shame is going gonna, is gonna to stop. Obligation is going to stop. Like I, I can do enough things, get angry enough or whatever, and it'll go away. And the reality is I can get angry and seethe and vent on a podcast and nothing will change, but I will feel better for having said something, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I'm wondering as Susie is talking what it looks like not to see the access and resources and privilege, privilege being things that I have that God gave me that I didn't do anything to get leveraging those things, doing those things on behalf of those who are not paying taxes in the United States and are not able to donate to organizations and are not able to organize on social media and in real life. Like, and then to engage in the, in the grief of it, because if I'm actually grieving that I'm able to see and identify these people as my human family. Yeah, I agree, Jonathan, that, that dehumanization is so real. And I think actually, as, as we talk about this, you're helping me process through part of what's so upsetting to me about hearing folks just be able to sit around and talk about these things and that it's that so we we did a bonus episode at one point on on how we commodify other people's trauma and um how dehumanizing that is and I think that's when it becomes upsetting to me is that when I feel like we're consuming these horrific stories that are coming out of Afghanistan we're consuming the horror and and I think there are times you know, I'm not going to deny that there aren't folks who are doing that because they genuinely care and are genuinely, you know, distraught and right. are, you know, really on their knees in prayer for the nation of Afghanistan on behalf of the Afghan people. I'm not going to deny that that doesn't exist. Um, and I'm grateful for that. What's upsetting is when, yeah, it becomes a dehumanizing narrative that they're just, you know, that the Afghan people are at best playing a sort of not even supporting role. They're like extras in a film that's all about the United States and mm. all about our history. And and even if we're criticizing the U.S., that that comes through sometimes, you know, whether we're the hero or the anti-hero in the story, somehow it's it all revolves around us. We're not at the center of every single story. <laughs> we're not at the center of the story at all. It's not about us. And we need to recognize that and and just be able to stand in solidarity with the Afghan people. And I agree, Jonathan, yeah, a little less conversation, a little more action. You know, if that means getting on your knees and really just urgently praying over the situation, any way that you can give, um, you know, God bless folks who are actively taking part in, in the efforts to evacuate those who are most vulnerable right now. I just went off on a huge tangent. I didn't mean to go off. On. But one one additional point that I think is important to be made is the dehumanization of the Afghan people within U.S. foreign policy and how policy decisions are made. And one thing that I've learned over the past few years is that part of the calculus for for U.S. policymakers when they're making decisions like, you know, do we invade Afghanistan? Do we pull out? the sort of equation they are supposed to use is you weigh values and interests. And the problem with that is that interests outweigh values every single time. 
And the values are only relevant when they serve and support the self-interest of the United States. And this goes directly to your point, Jonathan, that the United States, the U.S. government didn't seem to care all that much about what was going on in Afghanistan on September 10th. It was after the Twin Towers fell that all of a sudden folks are all up in arms over the treatment of, of women and girls by the Taliban, which again, like that's real. But we only seem to feel like it was our problem when it's best served us to go in and intervene. So it sounds like you're saying instead of it really being like interests and values considered as separate entities, a lot of times it's interests, whatever they are, are put in the terms of our values. They are right. translated yes. to the American public in values, but it's kind of a lawyerly way of appealing to those values, like regardless of what the interests are. Like we have our goals that we want to accomplish in our own self-interest, but we just tell ourselves and the public and the world that they reflect our values. I, th right. I think so, right. which is, you know, hypocritical at best. And, and also that's not to say that there aren't, you know, policymakers and lawmakers who don't genuinely care about these issues, but the fact that them caring doesn't lead to any sort of concrete action right. until it's in mm -hmm. our best yeah. interest. You know, I don't mean to say that the concern for marginalized and oppressed people is always disingenuous. You know, I'm not going to judge every single person who espouses those ideas. Right. I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, again, why doesn't it lead to, you know, what is it expressed as a moral imperative? Why didn't that moral imperative exist before? I think that's a good point to make is like there are tons of people, tons of people who went over to Afghanistan with America fully believing that they were there to do good things in the interest of the Afghan people. Yeah. They were excited about using American influence and power and money to better other people's lives. Yeah. Uh, people who went over there, policymakers who sent them over there, yeah. you know, uh, voters who supported um, the Bush administration, like all, all of that is real. Mm -hmm. um, right. But I think what we are saying here is that believing that that was going to happen stems a little bit from our... I think naivete about what America is actually going to yeah. do when it goes yeah. somewhere. And, and, and Christians have a lot to do with this, right? With Christian nationalism or, or just even not, it doesn't have to be like modern Christian nationalism. Colonialist Christians have been doing this for centuries, trying to take uh, the, the societies that Jonathan has correctly identified before on our podcasts as, you know, what the Bible would consider to be Babylon the people going around conquering and harming other people and trying to shape them in their own image and doing it with violence and arrogance and pride and make that Babylon into Zion. Mm -hmm. right. Like that's what our religion has been doing for forever. And like we, we, if you don't disentangle the two, like you think you can go over there and use the tools of the empire for the good of the kingdom of God. Right. Well, and if you believe that God is on your side as, you know, a quote unquote Christian nation, then not only do we not recognize the naivete, we call it faith. Yes. We go over Child there believing. Yeah, we go yeah. over there believing that everything's going to turn out okay. We are going over with the best intentions with our armies anointed by the Lord to bless people. And we think everything's going to turn out fine because God is on our side. God bless America. And then fast forward 20 years later and we have this. Yeah, Susie, I, that is an incredibly powerful point. I could not mm -hmm. agree more. Um, 
Jonathan, uh, you had something to say about the the way that we uh, ask, what do we do with these people when we go over and we mm-hmm. uh, invade or insert ourselves into the affairs of other countries? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that'll that'll be where we close out. So there's some really, really good journalism happening about what's happening right now. Um, the piece that struck me the most is in our newsletter, which was William Barber's piece, I think is the antithesis of what Susie was talking about. I'm not, not Susie was talking about what Susie asserted about people who conflate white supremacy, a racism and imperialism with the gospel is that a missionary kid can show up and preach a quote unquote gospel devoid of context, devoid of historical knowledge, devoid of like the, the narrative that's happening. And then when someone raises their hand or runs to the altar and says they've decided to follow Jesus, they can frame that under it was them who did it. Their showing up did that. And so the gospel becomes, again, talk about this before, this individualized event, whereas what William Barber pulls the gospel into, and many uh, theologians like him, we pull the gospel into an our father, an our savior, the savior of all creation, as opposed to like my dad who takes care of my world and redeems me, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of this conversation, I feel like we're we're asking the same question that the original colonizers were asking of Pope Nicholas V with the first papal bulls. Like, what do we do with these people that we want something from or have done something to us? We want to take what they have. We want to commit violence against them. We want revenge. We want something. And so we need to figure out a way to baptize what we're going to do. So what do we do with them is, I think, the question. And it's always been the question. When the Spanish were leaving, were, were, had children out of rape and abuse and violence in South America, and they would say, what do we do with these kids? Because we can't be Spanish. We can't take them back. What do we do with a kid like Frederick Douglass, who's, who's the product of rape? Like, oh, he's half black. Or Harriet Tubman, they're all like half black. What do we call them? Like, what do we do with these people who are not white, who are not straight, who are not men, who are not wealthy? who are not quote-unquote Christian. What do we do with these people? Jesus shows us what we do with them. We love them because everybody is them to God. Everybody. Ephesians 3 says, once you were enemies, now I call you friends. Every single one of us to God was them at one point. But he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And, and that is what I, I would hope that we would be able to do, which is why it's infuriating when Biden stands up and says, well, these people don't love their people enough. Don't love their country. Don't love them. That is infuriating. So you're going to say to a mom who's literally tossing her baby to a soldier, she doesn't love her country enough to fight. She doesn't, she doesn't love freedom enough to like raise her kids differently. And this is every narrative of white supremacy and American exceptionalism that says, what do we do with these people who ain't like us, who we don't understand? And, and so I, I feel like there's a, a fundamental violation of the image of God, individual and corporate that's happening. And it is- Heartbreaking. Yeah.
Like, yeah, like it, it, it sucks. It really, really sucks. And I think, first of all, thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, that's, that's all. Both, both of you, but both of you have been very open and generous with your emotional energy today. Um, I, I think, you know, so often, not so often, always, our answer to that question is not much, is what we were saying before. I, I do not fundamentally see you know, Obama's and Biden's instincts to leave Iraq and Afghanistan because the mission there, the people there were no longer serving our interests as that fundamentally different from the instincts of the neocons and, and the Bush people who wanted to go in there in the first place. Yeah. In, in that respect in particular, like the, right. the what, what do we do with these people? The answer is we control them to the extent that controlling them supports our interests and then we leave. And they deal with the fallout. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is an American problem across the aisle, across the board. We're calling everybody out on this one. And we've brought this up before, but in the foreign policy section of our anthology that we published last year, Jesse Wheeler wrote about this, I think, really well. His essay was called Bad Theology Kills. You know, one, one of the things he said that we, I think the three of us come back to a lot, is that from the perspective of the people who live in the areas where we have been conducting our wars for the last 20 years, you know, a Republican drone and a Democratic drone don't look any different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think your point is is well taken. Just another thought that, and this is a little bit tangential to our, our conversation, but another, I think, kind of bigger picture comment that just came to mind while Jonathan, you were talking. And I think it's so important, the point that you made about how we need to embrace this collective communal vision of the kingdom and, you know, try to be discipled out of our individualistic, self-interested, selfish ways. So one danger with deconstruction without decolonization is that we end up maintaining that focus on self. So it's still how has religion hurt me? How has this portrayal of the gospel hurt me? Um, how has the church hurt me? You know, how has toxic theology hurt me? And and we need to be asking those questions, not just individually, but corporately. How have these things yeah. hurt us? How have they hurt the world that, you know, as Jonathan so, so powerfully just expressed, the world that God loves and that Christ died for? And that can be a more difficult question to ask and more uncomfortable to ask because it does point to our complicity in these these systems. And, and so that means that even as Christians who are trying to critique these things, we also need to repent of these things. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, we're, we're part of this too. And I think we're going to end it there. There's, there isn't you know, we could try and find a hopeful note or something to end on, but that's just not the reality of, of the situation right now. And so I, I think we are, we're going to conclude there. All three of us are praying for what's going on over there. We're praying for everybody as we process through all of this. And we, we just wish everyone the grace and peace of Jesus. And that's, that's what we have right now. So uh, thank you so much for listening to us through this. I, I know that a lot of you will be praying with us about this and we appreciate that as well. Um, so just thanks for being here with us this week. 
Our theme song, as always, is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art uh, is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see everybody next week. If you do want a tiny bit of something that will make you smile, I suggest you do not hit stop until the end of this podcast. Uh, I can promise you that much, at least. We will we will see you next week. And what I think we 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 have to be able to do, which is what do you say? What bow can't be tied? Is it that joke? What bow can't be tied? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I am not sure what bow cannot be tied. Can you tell me? A rainbow. A rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a bow. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Apropos of nothing. Maya just walks in, <laughs> slays her dad with a joke, and leaves. <laughs> okay, Maya, Maya. All right, so I have to talk right now, Maya, but I appreciate you sharing your joke with me. Okay. Uncle Sai right, thought it was hilarious. Uncle Sai, yeah, Uncle Sai and, and Susie Aide laughed like really good. It was All right. a great joke. Thank you, Maya. <laughs>